Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we heard you give your word to your people and we pray that we would know your word's good work in our lives, that it would point us to Jesus and help us to trust him and that it would equip us to do the good that you call us to. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive it as your word, to understand it and be people who do and act, not hear and forget. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, would you lend your car to somebody you knew, not just suspected, but you knew would write it off? Maybe if you wanted the insurance, perhaps, but it's not likely, is it? More seriously, would you give your commitment, your loyalty to someone you knew would betray you, would abandon you? No. Even if you had to associate with them, you'd be wary, distant, looking for a way to separate yourself from them before they hurt you. The extraordinary thing we see in Deuteronomy 31 is that the Lord, the Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, knows before he brings Israel into the land of promise that they will betray him. He says to Moses, verse 16, they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Verse 20, they'll despise me and break my covenant for I know, verse 21, what they are inclined to do even today. Knowing Israel's betrayal. What do we learn here that the Lord does? And why does he do it? Uh, what can we learn of our God in Deuteronomy 31? The God we say we trust, with whom we're in relationship by following Jesus, the Son of God. Asking of scripture what we can learn of God is always worthwhile. For knowing God is in itself something we should long for. Our Lord says eternal life is knowing the true God. Paul prays for believers not only that we would know God's will but that we would increase in our knowledge of God. And here in Deuteronomy 31, God teaches us of himself. And this knowledge of God is the most practical of all knowledge. For this is his world. He is our creator, the ruler, the judge of all. Knowing the truth of God, we also learn how to live in his world, as his people, at peace with the one who is the source of all life and blessing and love. So as God teaches us of himself here, what can we also learn this morning about how we're to live as his people? So what does the Lord knowing Israel will betray him, do. Well, the first thing we see is that knowing Israel's certain rebellion, their apostasy, the Lord doesn't wash his hands of them. He doesn't abandon them before they despise and shame him by turning away from him. What the Lord does is keep his word. Even though he knows they'll be faithless, he will be faithful. He will bring them into the land, that land where reminded he promised to their fathers and to them. Speaking to Joshua in verse 23, the Lord says, 
you shall bring the people of Israel in the la- into the land that I swore to give them. The Lord doesn't let the wrong they will do him stop him from being the God he is, the faithful God whose promise is always sure. And their possession of what is promised is his work alone, the fruit of his effort. Verse 3, he himself will go over before them. He will destroy the nations. Verse 4, the Lord will do to them as he did to Sinai and Og. Verse 5, the Lord will give them over to Israel. Verse 6, the Lord will go with them. The one Israel will despise is the one who will bring them to live in that good land. And as part of his faithfulness, he'll give them a leader, Joshua. Uh, we see in verses 7 and 8, whom the Lord personally commissions, as you heard, for this task. Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now many of the people had never known another leader than Moses. Forty years he'd led them. And the loss of such a dominant figure, you know, the man who'd stood up to Pharaoh, the man who'd led them through the wilderness, the loss of such a dominant figure as they're about to face the challenge of occupying the land could have been unsettling and fearful, a source of confusion and even conflict as tribal leaders competed for influence. But the Lord says Joshua will lead them into the land and not only bring them into the land, he will, verse 7b, put them in possession of it. That is, be the one to distribute to the people each one's inheritance, their portion. He will, in a sense, bring them rest. Now, he wouldn't be another Moses, but the people now know that he is appointed by the Lord for this task, the person of the Lord's choice to fulfil the Lord's promise to them. They can have confidence in him. So in the face of their known abandonment, the Lord remains faithful, committed to his word, his promise, providing all that they need for the fulfilment of that promise whose fulfilment depends on him alone. And this is a promise, as we know, given by grace, not earned. And we see here it is kept by grace, grace to sinful people. The gracious Lord is utterly reliable. That is his character, the character we see in the Lord Jesus. You see, Jesus knew what people, the people of God, would do to him. The people of Israel would meet God's gracious faithfulness in sending his son into the world to save them with hatred and betrayal, despising him and forsaking him. But their faithlessness did not stop Jesus from doing what he said he would do, seeking and saving the lost, dying for sin and in three days rising from the dead and becoming through his death and rising the saviour of the world, the one who would draw all people to himself. Our God always remains faithful. His word always remains true and sure. Human sin, our sin, cannot stop the Lord from doing what he says. 
even when we show ourselves to be so unworthy of his promise. The fulfilment of his promise doesn't depend on us but on him and that is good news. And our faithful God tells us here how his people should respond to his faithfulness, to his commitment to do what he has said, his commitment to be with them. He says to the people, verse 6, be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of their enemies. And he says to Joshua, verse 8, that he would be with Joshua, he will not leave you or forsake you, do not fear or be dismayed. Whatever our responsibility, however great the challenge, the Lord tells us in speaking to his people that we should not fear, but have the courage to do what he asks of us, what he commands of us, for he is committed to his people, not at a distance or in the abstract, but with his people. Now for the people of Israel, courage was needed to obey the Lord's command in the conquest of Canaan to devote the inhabitants and all their property to destruction. The obedience that flows from trusting the Lord's faithful commitment to his people, the obedience of faith becomes the means of enjoying what God has in a sense secured for them and given for them, given to them. For Joshua Courage was needed to lead the people into the land and to stay at that task until it was finished when the people had occupied the land. Trusting the Lord's commitment becomes the source for Joshua of the persevering obedience needed to discharge his calling. And we have to learn from that, don't we? Because believers in Jesus also have a challenging obedience and a challenging call. Now, it's not to conquer a country or lead millions of people. No, we are called to love Jesus above all, even if it means going against the wishes of a husband or wife or son or daughter. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Oh, we're called to not be ashamed of Jesus' words in a society that so often mocks his claims and commands. We're called to forgive the one who has wronged us and repents with all the possibility of being wronged again. To love, to love that difficult husband or wife or child or workmate. We have a challenging obedience and a challenging call and we can all be tempted to be afraid of what might happen to us if we do what Jesus says, tempted to fear ridicule or loneliness or loss of security or exhaustion. And we're to let that fear come between us and being faithful to Jesus. Oh, yeah, we're all tempted at times to say it'll be too hard, too difficult to keep on with what Jesus has called us to, to keep caring for that sick spouse or child, to keep praying for that rebellious child, to keep telling the gospel to people who don't seem to want to hear. But our God is the faithful God. He always keeps his word. And he has made the same commitment to us believers in Jesus, to be with us always, to never leave us or forsake us. He won't fail us. Not fearing 
the courageous obedience that flows from trusting the Lord's commitment to us is the means he has given to us to enjoy what he has secured for us, what he gives to us. And it's the means of persevering in our calling. So as you hear those words, do you know, believer in Jesus, that the Lord is with you? Do you know that for yourself, in your heart? Do you know and are convicted that he will be faithful to his promise? Always faithful to you. Whether that's the promise that you can always draw near to him for help, the promise to forgive your sin. Do you know the Lord is with you and he will be always faithful to keep his promise? What does God, knowing Israel's faithlessness, do? He keeps his word and he calls his people to live lives of courageous obedience because we trust his word, his commitment to his people. And he also, as we see in verses 9 to 13, provides his word. Israel's faithlessness will not come about from any lack, any deficiency in the Lord's provision to sustain their faith or their knowledge of his will. Verse 9. Uh, and Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time of the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women and little ones and the sojourner who within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So Moses writes down this law, better, this Torah, this instruction that he's been giving them in Deuteronomy. That is, Moses creates, at the Lord's command, a permanent public record of the teaching that the Lord had given him for Israel. And then Moses makes provision for this word to be read to all every seventh year, the year for the release of slaves and the forgiveness of debts. Uh, every seventh year when the people, all the people, men, women, children, sojourners, are gathered to celebrate the completion of the harvest at the festival of the booths. So the reading of the law is actually associated with freedom. The freedom of the people of God from slavery and it's associated with plenty and rejoicing, the plenty that the Lord has bestowed on his people in the land. And the Torah is to be read, so verse 12, the people could hear, learn, fear, that is, develop a trusting awe of God and obey, being careful to do all the words of this law. And it's not just so the first hearers could lead, learn those things. It was to be read so that their children, verse 13, could also hear, learn, fear. The word would create faith, create the response God called for from his people. Long after Moses was gone, 
The written word would enable continuing relationship between the Lord and his people and make it possible for them to transmit that relationship with the Lord to subsequent generations. The written word would mediate knowledge of God and his will and would be the means of creating a trusting awe of God, genuine faith in the hearts of the children and their children and their children after them. Now the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3 that the word Moses wrote was not only for Israel, it's also for us. It is the scripture that God uses still to bring us to know God in Christ and to equip us to do his will. It still mediates relationship with the living God. And so, believers in Jesus, we should read and study the Old Testament and learn to trust and do God's will from studying it. But Moses writing down the Torah, creating this permanent public written record of God's revelation and commanding it to be read becomes a model of revelation, a model that reaches its climax and fulfilment in the gospel of Jesus. Uh, the Lord Jesus also provided his people with a word by calling and equipping the apostles to take the gospel to all nations. And like Deuteronomy, it would be written down so that those not there during Jesus' ministry, the generations to come, people in faraway lands like us, could become his disciples, could know what Jesus had done and what he commanded, could come into a life-giving relationship of faith with the Lord Jesus. As John says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing have life in his name. That written gospel word is given to sustain our relationship with Jesus because it nurtures faith. And it's given to allow us to transmit relationship with Jesus to our children and to all. But of course it will only do that as it's read and heard, learnt and believed. Now that reading and hearing should happen in our common life. The scriptures have to be central to our common life. But it also has to happen in private, in our homes. And because there are so many other voices, words competing for our attention, and because we're so forgetful, and because in the word we come to know Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, who is an inexhaustible mine of truth, we should be reading the word every day. And parents especially hear this. You mustn't neglect the means the faithful God has given you to bring your children to fear the Lord our God. That is, to bring them to have a living faith in God's Son Jesus. Read the word with them. Well, knowing Israel's faithlessness, the Lord keeps his word. He provides his word and as we heard towards the end of the chapter, he provides a witness. In fact, not just one, but three witnesses. So the written law to be deposited next to the ark, combining the abiding standards of the relationship that Israel had freely entered into with the Lord and combining the blessings and the curses, well, that's to be a witness, a witness to God's 
faithfulness, his righteousness in keeping all the expectations of the covenant, everything that he's committed himself to do, and a witness to Israel's unrighteousness in abandoning the expectations of the covenant. And you see there verse 28, heaven and earth are to be witnesses, witnesses who are enduring, always present, always able to be called upon as witnesses to Israel's words and behaviour. But especially in Deuteronomy 31, we see that Moses is commissioned to write a song that he's to teach an Israel to, that he's to teach Israel the song that we have in Deuteronomy 32, a song that is specifically given to be a witness against Israel. Verse 19. Write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. Verse 21. When many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. Now we're going to look at the content of that song next week. But in brief, it, it speaks of things that God's already talked about. It speaks of God's goodness and faithfulness and it prophesies the people's ungrateful turning away from the Lord and it prophesies the Lord's judgment on their turning away, that their disobedience would arouse, as we heard in verse 17, his anger and cause him, verse 17 and 18, to hide his face from them. So it's a word of prophetic judgment on sin and more. But what's the purpose of these witnesses? Why are they given, particularly this prophetic song? And they're given for three purposes. Firstly, they will convict. Convict Israel of the rightness of the prophesied judgment. Secondly, when they're experiencing those judgments, this word of prophetic judgment will actually point them to the source of life. And thirdly, when they return to the Lord, it will actually help preserve them in life. So let's think of those three purposes. So firstly, the testimony of these witnesses will convict Israel of their sin in abandoning the Lord and the righteousness of God's judgment upon them. And that was God's grace. You see, the song, the witnesses, will leave Israel without excuse for they'll show that the Lord clearly forbade going and worshipping other gods and also clearly stated what would happen when they did, that it would arouse his anger and break their relationship with him where he'd turn his face away. That is, they would no longer enjoy his favour and help. And on that day, when they're experiencing these judgments, they won't be able to say all the things that we use to excuse our sin. They won't be able to say, I didn't know, because this song was to be memorised and passed on to every generation. And they won't be able to say, look, look I, I never agreed to that, because actually the Torah tells them that being the Lord's is what makes them Israel and gives them title to the land. Oh, and, and then they won't be able to say of their disobedience, I never thought it was that serious or it's unfair because the Lord has given them clear warnings in the blessings and curses of the Torah. In Deuteronomy 28, 
and in the punishments repeated in the song. This song and the other witnesses will leave them leave them without excuse. And being without excuse, if they listen to the song, on that day they will have to confess that God is right in his judgments. And actually that is a mercy. Being brought to the point where you abandon your excuses and say God is right in his judgments is a mercy. Because at that point you know that your only hope is in dealing with God. Your only hope will be if you can find mercy from him. And this song is actually an expression of God's gracious faithfulness to his commitment to a sinful people, an expression of his grace, because this song will point them to the one from whom they can find mercy. You see, where this song is believed, it points the way to life. Like the gospel of Jesus, the same word that pronounces judgment tells them, as we'll see, to whom they can turn for life. This prophetic song, declaring their sin and God's judgment on them, teaches them clearly that actually the Lord is in charge. He rules the world and it's his will that's done in all the affairs of history and creation. This song tells them that the Lord knows already what they'll do. Oh, and it tells them that hundreds of years before, he knows what will happen as a consequence. And it actually says, those consequences, those judgments will come about because he will bring them about. His word determines history he rules. And so when Israel in the future is enduring the judgment the song goes on to speak of, invasion from its neighbours, famine, pestilence, and when at those times there are many competing explanations of how those things have happened to them and even more debates about what they should do, this prophetic word will give them light in their darkness. It will tell them, this has happened because we have forsaken the Lord who rules over all things. And hearing this, they will know that the way to life is, as we heard last week in Deuteronomy 30, to turn back to the Lord, to seek his mercy. It says that he has wounded and only he can heal. So, for example, to see how that works, let's say Israel are being threatened by foreign invaders and at that time they could look to themselves for their security, couldn't they, in their foreign alliances or building up their defences or increasing the size of their army. They could look to themselves or they could turn to the Lord. Now, of course, this is not a hypothetical situation. It's one the prophet Isaiah speaks of. And under those circumstances, we see in Isaiah 1, King Ahaz, he chose to look to himself. He chose to disbelieve the prophetic word, seek security in alliances, and he brought the people into poverty and bondage to Assyria. But another king, Hezekiah, he believed and turned to the Lord, and he was delivered by the Lord from the invading army. 
To know the word of prophetic judgment, to hear the word of prophetic judgment is actually grace to sinners because it points us to the one who is judge and who can also and alone pardon and deliver from judgment. Now the gospel of Jesus is also a word of prophetic judgment. It tells the outcome of rejecting God. In fact, that's where it starts, isn't it? That the wages of sin is death. And at the same time, it offers life to those who repent and trust Jesus. As Jesus offers life to those who follow him, so also he warns, doesn't he, of the consequences of turning away from him. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, he said. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. That is a prophetic word of judgment. Whoever seeks to save his life, that is, whoever relies on himself or herself to make them secure, to find their meaning, to find their... Whoever relies on that says Jesus will lose it. And Paul reminds us, doesn't he, that we need to keep following Jesus because we will reap what we sow. Do not be deceived, God's not mocked, for whatever one sows, that also will he or she reap. For the one who sows to his or her own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There's a promise of life there, but there is also a word of prophetic judgment. He who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Now, I hope you know these words of prophesied judgment for yourself. It's a way of God doing you good. It may be that God will use it to call you back to himself when you're experiencing the grief of your sin, the awful consequences of your selfish choices of sowing to your flesh. It may be at that time, as you know this word and experience those consequences, you will say to yourself, this is what the Lord said would happen, that my sin would bring me misery. He speaks the truth and he also says he will have mercy on those who return to him. And I hope you teach these words of prophetic judgment to your children because if your children turn away and experience the loss and corruption of life that sin brings, well, that at that time they'll recall this word and turn back to the Lord who can alone undo the effects of his judgment on our sin. But you should also teach the prophetic judgments of God to yourself and your children because like the song of Deuteronomy 32, it is a God-given way of preserving life where it's believed. This is what Moses says of the song he's just taught in Deuteronomy 32. Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law for it is no empty word for you but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. These words by which I am warning you, says Moses, it is your very life.
Why? Why do these words of prophetic judgment, when heard and believed, bring life? You see, this witness actually teaches us the truth of God, taught Israel the truth of God. And so it becomes a frame of reference for them and for us through which we can interpret our experience, whether it's of judgment or blessing, interpret it truly. You see, as we'll see, this song of prophetic judgment gives a believing worldview, at the heart of which is the truth that the Lord rules. He is almighty, his word is always true and will never fail. He's merciful to those who turn back to him and yes, he is just. He always does exactly what he says. He's not inactive in the world, he's not passive, he's not absent. He will judge and he can give life. Adopting this framework as their own would have saved Israel. It would have been life to them. And it is life to us who learn this not only from Deuteronomy but from the gospel that tells us God is active and that Jesus is Lord and he has exalted him as judge of the living and the dead and the one who can give life. Let me give you two examples to show you how adopting this framework might save your life. Let's say you're tempted to sexual immorality. That's quite a common temptation in our society. In fact, it's one that's kind of promoted. And if you've ever been tempted, you will know that your desire torments you, makes you restless, unable to think of anything else. And the world says, give in. Life is found in following your desires, gratifying yourself. There's no harm in that and probably nobody will know. But the worldview this song gives, that scriptures give, the gospel worldview <coughs> says God sees and knows and will call every deed and thought into judgment. And those who practice sexual immorality, break God's command, will not inherit the kingdom of God, have no part amongst God's people. It tells you that to follow your desire is the way of death. And to struggle against sinful desire, even though it is struggle and effort and uncomfortable, to fight to put it to death is life. And it tells you that the God who rules all is the God you can turn to for grace and help. There you are. You're faced with a choice. Seeing the world the way God's word teaches us to see it will give you life. Here's another example. You look around at society and increasingly feel you're the odd one out that what you say, believe about marriage or about life, for example, you know, being committed to protect life from conception or, or what you believe about greed being bad or about the reality of objective moral truth, you look around and, and you see what you believe is out of step with so many others. Now, the world has interpreted history. It'll tell you that's because we are now a post-Christian society, that Christianity's had its time and it's past. And the world has moved on and knows better. 
And really both reason and personal comfort tells you you should change, give up thinking you should live by Jesus' word, that life would be better for all if you did that. But the worldview of the prophetic word, the word of prophetic judgment and salvation, that worldview, whether you learn it from Jesus' parables of the kingdom that speak of the day when the Son of Man will send his angels into the world and separate the righteous from the unrighteous, or the parables of the kingdom that tell us the kingdom that will, will keep growing until it fills all like the leaven that runs through the lump, or, or the prophecies of judgment that the gospel contains, like Jesus' teaching on the sheep and the goats. The worldview that you learn from God's word is word of prophetic judgment tells you that there is no post-Jesus-is-Lord world. Whatever may be happening to the social influence of Christians in our society, there is no post-Jesus-is-Lord world. God has told you what the end will be. And he's told you his word is still at work in the world even if it's unseen. And he's told you that one day Jesus, who is Lord, will be seen as Lord by all. And where you're taught by his word, you'll know that to abandon Jesus is folly and to persevere is life, even if the world makes it tough. The witness of this song preserves life for Israel where it's believed. Just as the prophetic word of judgment in the gospel preserves life where it is believed. Preserves life by teaching a worldview that allows us to interpret what's going on in the light of God's reality and then allows us to act in truth, in reality, in a way that will give and preserve life forever. God knows Israel will be faithless. But because he is who he is, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, the God we meet in his son Jesus, the word become flesh, full of grace and truth, he does not abandon his sinful people. He keeps his word. He is faithful where we are faithless. He will never fail in his promises, the promises he gives us in the gospel of his son. So we should live courageously, not giving in to fear, but boldly doing his will. And he has provided his word, not just Deuteronomy, but all his word, especially his gospel word written for us, the word that teaches us to fear him, to live with trusting awe, knowing that this word shows us our God and gives us and keeps us in life where it is learnt, believed, obeyed. So we should know that word so that we let it do its God-given work in our lives. And the faithful God provides witnesses, his prophetic word, a word that left Israel without excuse for their rebellion, now a gospel word that will leave us without excuse if we turn our back on it. But that's a word that also promises life, 
promises life to sinful people by turning us to the one who speaks it, by turning us to him for mercy for the life he promises. If anyone, says Jesus, hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. That's right, the gospel word. That will convict that prophetic word, those who do not heed it. But, says Jesus, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. So don't be like faithless Israel who had the word of the faithful God and rejected it. Don't let Jesus speak the word of the faithful God to you in vain. Believe him for life. Turn to him in need for mercy. Rely on his promise and teaching to give you life and to keep you in life. Persevere in him by being shaped in all your choices by the truth he speaks and trusting his promise that he is with you. Give yourself to do his will. Let's pray. Our gracious God, uh, we do pray that we would be hearers who do. As we come to know you, the God whose word is never broken, increase our faith and let that trust in you be seen in a cheerful, a courageous obedience to do all that you call us to. As we see your provision for us in the writing down of your revelation, help us not to be lazy and faithless, but to use it, to know it, to hear it, to learn it, to believe it and to put it into practice. And gracious Lord, help us also to hear this word of prophetic judgment which you graciously and mercifully give to your people to convict us of our sin, to turn us to you for mercy and to keep us in life. We pray that we would know that word and it would do your good work in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.